You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. So, like I said, we're continuing our series in Luke, and Justin did an awesome job walking us through last week, Luke 9, and this story where the question about who Jesus is is being answered, and he's being transfigured as uh, in this passage, and it's something a little complex to understand, but what we do see is that as Jesus is being transfigured it, with, in the presence of Moses and Elijah, there's something magnificent, something otherworldly happening. And in today's passage, we'll see what's commonly known as the commissioning of the 72, where Jesus will commission a group of people to go out and spread the news of the gospel that the kingdom of God is near. And what's interesting in this passage is that we'll see Jesus using ordinary people in extraordinary ways for his glory and not ours. And many of you know that I don't watch a lot of movies, um, and it's not because I don't like them. I actually enjoy them a lot, but um, it only happens when I'm awake, and they tend to put me to sleep. Um, And I remember last year, somebody asked me, hey, what was the best movie you saw this year? It was one of those icebreakers, and I remember saying Spider-Man, and they immediately said, oh, that's a great one what else did you see this year? And I was like, nah, that's what I saw. Um, And they had the same reaction you did just now. Um, But I love the movie, and I always remember as a kid loving Spider-Man, and part of the reason was it was like this ordinary skinny kid that all of a sudden got bit by a spider and turns into like this awesome thing, right? He's flying around, jumping backwards off of buildings, all this stuff. And I say that because today in this passage, we see something kind of Spider-Man-like, right? Um, And even today, you see this fascination of kind of something ordinary being used in some extraordinary way. And today we have Spidey and his friends. And I know not a lot of you all get it, but some of you have watched too much of it. (coughs) And I certainly have. Um... And again, in this story, we see these people who Jesus is calling to be be sent out um, as missionaries. And oftentimes when we come up to this passage, we think this is kind of Jesus talking about people who are in full-time ministry, right? And this isn't what he's talking about. He's This is rather an invitation for us as regular people to join God in his mission. And over, again, and over and over again in the book of Luke, we see that the question about how Jesus' kingdom is being developed on earth is being questioned by everyone. In fact, if you look at it, for many of the spectators, Jesus' strategy isn't necessarily the greatest. Right? He's calling these people um, from all over the part who aren't necessarily qualified for the job. Some are fishermen. They, they have no clue what this Jesus thing is about, but he's going to bring them together to accomplish his mission. See, if this was a startup, Jesus's business plan would be questioned at this point. It would be like, okay, who's backing you? Who is this dude? Who's, who's this dude, right? Like, what, are, what have these guys done? But over and over again, we see that Jesus is using the ordinary to bring about 
his kingdom. And so again, he's doing something similar with the 72, but he's going to give them kind of this, this specific strategy that they should follow as they share the gospel of Jesus in the surrounding cities. And what I love about this passage is Jesus shows us again his power to work through regular people, through regular ways to bring something beautiful. And in the same way, I believe Jesus, just like he used the 72, wants to use us today as well to, through our ordinary means, bring extraordinary things, bring beautiful communities together for the expansion of his kingdom. And so we'll see this commissioning, we'll see the strategy that Jesus is telling them to use and the reminder of the real reason they should rejoice in Jesus. And the first thing he says is the harvest is plentiful. Look with me in verse 2. He says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he's saying this before uh, he, he sends them out to the different cities and he wants to remind them of a couple of things before they go. And he says to pray. He tells them to pray that there would be more laborers who are willing to share the gospel and the message of the kingdom of God in the surrounding cities. And again, Jesus is using kind of this farming and agricultural language that he so often uses to describe his, the playing field they're in. And he's speaking to them in spiritual terms of the reality that they are of as they have been selected um, to be able to share this message as well. And it's a beautiful thing we see here where he reminds them that the harvest is plentiful. And I think part of why he does that is to show the gravity of it. That there are people out there who still haven't heard the gospel of Jesus but also to show the blessing, the opportunity there is when we share the gospel with other people, something beautiful happens. And so I think there are two realities Jesus is kind of trying to point at here. And the first one is that the way in which his mission moves forward is through ordinary people. See, oftentimes we read this passage, we think of people in full-time ministry, maybe we think of the missionaries that are being sent, but what Jesus is saying here is, hey, we're all missionaries. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not going somewhere. And whatever sphere of influence he's given you, whether you're a social worker or a teacher or a doctor or you work in the corporate world, whatever sphere of influence, Jesus wants you to use that for his mission. And one of the ways in which we do that, other than our spheres of influence, is through the local church. As we gather to worship, as we take care of the children, as we park cars, as we organize chairs, what we're doing is creating a space through ordinary means for people to encounter Jesus and to spread the mission of the kingdom of God through earth. And I think the second reality He's also challenging here is they're thinking that they would embrace a bigger vision of what it means of the gospel of Jesus working in the lives of people. See, oftentimes we, we too think that perhaps the harvest isn't plentiful. I know I feel that temptation. And we project this subconsciously thinking maybe, ah, I don't know if I should share the gospel this time. 
I don't know how they'll respond to me being able to tell them about Jesus. Maybe they think I'm crazy. Or maybe they'll reject me. Or maybe they'll think I'm just annoying. Or hey, maybe I don't have all the answers to be able to answer the questions that they might have. And so I hesitate. Or perhaps you're wrestling with the answers yourself. And that leads you to not be able to even share the experience of faith that you've had in Jesus. And so Jesus wants us to embrace a bigger vision of the power of the gospel at work in the lives of others. And church, we need to recognize that church isn't about us. The gospel isn't about us. That yes, we are called to live in a community and encourage one another and encourage those who are suffering and lift each other up. But the reality is that we have a message that is to go into the furthermost parts of the earth and in our spheres of influence and share the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. And through that, the Holy Spirit, through his working power, will put the words in our mouths and will open the hearts of people so that they can receive the word of Jesus in supernatural ways. And so before Jesus gives them their job assignment, he wants to make sure they understand, hey, there is a harvest out there waiting for us. But he also wants to warn them that they're going to a dangerous place. He says that he's sending them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Not my last name, just lambs. He's essentially telling them, this work that you're going to go do This work you're engaged in is something dangerous. See, when we engage in the mission of God, we are pushing about against darkness. We are pushing against deep-seated darkness, deep-rooted darkness in the places we go, but also in the lives of people. And when we go into these places, we need to be ready to receive the attack that may come. And that's what Jesus is trying to point to them here that these are real powers of Satan that are out there that we should be aware of. So Jesus takes a moment again to warn them of these things. And after this, he's, he's laying out the plan. He says, okay, let's have a, a little team huddle. In the corporate world, they call them daily sinks, daily huddles. But he's bringing everyone together to say, hey, now we got to talk about what we're actually going to do. And this is like a meeting not full of useless information, but like full of the Spirit, right? And so he says, look with me at verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And there's a couple of things here that I think Jesus is trying to emphasize through this strategy. See, we know that they're being sent two by two. And part of the reason why I think they're being sent Two by two isn't just for the company of being able to share the gospel with somebody else in the presence of somebody else, but it's resembling what would have been under Jewish law um, 
anytime somebody would have been convicted of some crime, they would have needed a tested, uh, someone who would testify, right? And would need a witness. And so I think these people, as they're taking the gospel of Jesus and preaching it in these cities, the other person is also serving as someone who will testify if they reject the gospel, the judgment that will come upon them. And as they go, Jesus instructs them to do seven specific things. And I want you to see kind of of these seven things what Jesus is trying to emphasize. The first, he says, travel light. And then he says, don't greet anyone on the road. And I think this points again to the urgency, the urgency of the message that's before them. The message is urgent. And in, back in that day, right, as they went through the streets, this would have been very customary for them to, oh, I see Will over there. I'm going to stop and talk to Will. And this could last an hour as they were walking through tough terrains. This isn't like I'm getting in my car and driving as fast as I get uh, until I get there, okay? This is like maybe they had a picnic in the middle of this. And Jesus is saying, hey, this time, maybe save the picnic. We don't have time for this. He's saying, hey, this message is urgent and we need to deliver this. Then he goes on to kind of talk about these things that are all around relationship. He he says, seek the peace and salvation of others. Does that sound familiar to you? Maybe seeking the good of Birmingham? This is where we get that kind of language from. He says, seek the peace and salvation of others. Receive whatever provision is given. He sees... He says, hey, find those homes and receive their hospitality. Find those homes who are willing to use their homes for the gospel and receive it with joy. And then he says, stay rooted. He says, don't go door to door knocking, saying, hey, have you heard the gospel? He says, go to homes and stay there and build relationships. This isn't door to door sales. We're not selling knives here. And lastly, he says, tell the, share the message. Tell them about the kingdom of God that is near. See, that's what differentiates us from a nonprofit church, is that we have a message. We don't just have good works. We're not just a good community. You could probably go to a nonprofit and a country club and you'd be fine. But we have a message. We have a message we need to share. And Jesus is going to remind them of that. And this isn't necessarily a strategy for modern missions, right? Later on in Luke 22, we'll see Jesus giving them a totally different strategy on how they're supposed to share the gospel. But what we do see is that the message is urgent. We are to build relationships as we go through, and we are to share the gospel with others. As we read these different things, I think Jesus is trying to pull some strings in their heart as well, reminding them to focus on certain things. And I think for us, one of the things um, we can learn from this, or there are several things we can learn from this, but I think the first one is that we can trust Jesus for his provision. See, oftentimes it's easy for us to think we don't have the resources. Perhaps it's easy to think, I don't know if we can pull this off, God. We don't have the stuff it takes. Maybe it's in your own life, you're insecure, and you say, I don't know if I have what it takes to be able to do that one thing. And Jesus is saying, no, you can trust me, that I will provide for your need. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. I provide for the birds in the sky and I also will provide for you. He says, I'm Jehovah Jireh. Now hear me out, church. This isn't like some sort of prosperity gospel where, hey, come to Jesus and we're going to be balling, right? This ain't it. You're probably not going to be balling off of Jesus. Probably shouldn't. What this is saying is, hey, when you take leaps of faith for the mission of Jesus, I will be your provision. Both spiritually and physically, I am the God of the universe who holds everything and you can trust me to provide for every single need. And I know a lot of us have experienced that. I know a lot of us as we moved to citizens, maybe from other cities, we moved from different parts of the city perhaps to join this mission. We felt the provision of Jesus that we came to a place where he had no jobs, we had no homes, we had nowhere to meet, and Jesus has been providing over and over again. And that's what he's talking about here, saying, hey, when you take a leap of faith in the mission of God, I will be your sustainer. I will be your provider. And secondly, I think from this we can learn that our homes can also serve as a vehicle for God's mission. If you notice in this passage, he's telling them to find homes and dwell in them where these people would open their homes for the good of the gospel. Jesus is instructing them to find these people. And I think that's what we do today with our community groups. Here at Citizens, right? We open our homes and as you open your couch and people sit on it, as you bring your platter of snacks out, as you bring your pitcher, what you're doing is showing hospitality to other people and using these things that God has given you for the ultimate good of the expansion of the kingdom so that other people would come to know Jesus. See, your couch isn't just to look good so you can take a picture, post it on Instagram, or so people can come and you can have a good time. Your couch was ultimately designed to be used for the mission of God because as Christians, our resources are meant for the kingdom. Everything I have, my house, my car, my couch, whatever it is, I am to give it to Jesus for the expansion of the kingdom. And so we can practice hospitality knowing that when I open up my couch for someone to sit, I'm not just opening my couch to have a good time, but I am showing kindness and I am participating in the mission of God. And that kindness also applies to our neighbors and is something that they will be able to see and hopefully experience as the goodness and kindness of Jesus rolls through you in your heart, in your actions, and they are able to experience it. And lastly, church, participating in God's mission requires boldness. We see that Jesus isn't just telling them, hey, go to this town, you know, dwell with people, eat with people, and just kind of preach the gospel. He's saying, no, go in there, tell them about Jesus. He's telling them to proclaim the gospel with boldness. And oftentimes, church, it's easy for us to to get on board with kind of doing the stuff. I can go out and do the good works. I can go out and do the good things for the community. I can get on board with that like really easily. But church, non-believers can do that as well. Non-believers can build a playground. 
The reality is that proclaiming the gospel of Jesus takes a certain level of boldness where we step out of our comfort zone and say, I am going to share the good news and share what Jesus has done in my life so that this person can also experience the goodness of Jesus. And that sense of fear of rejection that you may have, we can let go of knowing, hey, Jesus is so much more better than I am, and they'll probably enjoy Jesus more than me anyways. And so we can share this gospel with boldness. And now you may be wondering, right? Well, that's all great. I want to share the gospel with people. I want other people to come to know Jesus. But what if they don't listen? And I think uh, they probably had the same questions. And Jesus knows there's people who aren't going to listen as well. And so if you look with me at verse 10, it says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for than for that town. See, Jesus tells them, you know what? If they don't listen, still let them know that the kingdom of Jesus is near. And just know that in the day of judgment, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> he tells them, and in the following verses, right, he starts pronouncing woes on these city, cities, which when I read it, I'm like, what is this? And he's pronouncing these woes kind of to resemble what's happening in the Old Testament as well, as prophets would go into towns and they would say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, telling them to repent of their sins. And we see that all over the Old Testament as they're telling them that God's judgment is coming and they should repent. And he's kind of resembling the same thing in this passage. And the reality, church, is that in order for good news to be good news, there's also bad news. And the bad news, church, is that without Jesus, we're condemned. We have nowhere to go. We are sinners before him and we are lost and helpless. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we can escape that condemnation and enjoy relationship with God. And in verse 16, he says something that would have kind of shocked everybody, but also filled them with confidence. And I think hopefully it fills us with confidence as well. It says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. A lot of rejection. But what Jesus is saying here is we can let go of that fear of rejection. See, we can share the, the news with boldness, but remember, hey, if they reject you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And hey, if they reject me, they're rejecting the Father. And so you can just go out and freely share the gospel, not worrying about the results. Because ultimately, if they reject you, they're not really rejecting you anyways. And church, I think that's where we can often get caught up. 
I feel the tension myself, right? With that fear of rejection again. See, the mission of God isn't about you or me. It's about Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus is much better than you and me anyways. We don't have to worry about people liking us. We can share our faith with boldness to others, knowing that there is someone much better, much greater, much more beautiful who loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. That should give us reason to rejoice. And what's interesting about this passage, unlike many other passages in Scripture, is that when they come back from their missionary journey, this is actually a success. See, oftentimes uh, when people are sent out, it can take years. Sometimes it's not a success. Sometimes it's successful. But we see that they come back and they're rejoicing because something happened that was supernatural, that was out of their control, that was amazing. But Jesus is going to challenge their thinking and change their focus from inward to outward. See, they come back from the mission thinking they're like, awesome. They come back saying, Jesus, you won't believe what happened out there. I mean, we were telling demons to to go that way and they were going that way. I mean, imagine just being a parent. Your kid don't listen, right? You say, go over there. They don't go. And they go this way. But all of a sudden, you're like, yo, demon, go over there. And you're like, whoa, right? That's how these people are coming back to Jesus saying, yo, Jesus, you should have seen this. This was amazing. In fact, in Luke 9, they sent 12 out, and we don't get that report. I'm sure they're coming back walking like, man, I wonder what those guys were doing. Because we didn't hear anything, and we were just telling the demons to go this way and that way, and everybody was moving. And Jesus is going to kind of go like, yo, that's not it. This isn't about you. He ultimately confronts this kind of thinking and redirects them to what he believes is most important. He says, man, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that these demons are under your authority because I gave you this authority. Saying, don't rejoice in that. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? I sent you. I backed you. He says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, he's saying, hey, guys, rejoice in your salvation. And I love this because it's a wonderful reminder for us of what we do when we gather as a church. When we gather as a church, I think sometimes we can lose sight of what it means for us to come and worship and take care of kids and go take care of cars and help park and move chairs and we lose sight of it in the day-to-day. But this is a great reminder for us that when we gather, we are to gather the rejoice in our salvation. That whatever mission it is we are doing, whatever good it is that we're seeking for Birmingham, whatever our good works are, at the end of the day, they should be driven by us rejoicing in the Lord. And so we lose sight of that, but Jesus wants to, again, be able to redirect our souls. And I know it's hard because 
I, I, I can uh, testify to this. You know, you come into church and it's been a long week. And so you're thinking, Jesus, it's been a long week. I've had so much to do this week. My job's been a mess. I'm so stressed. I, you know, that relationship that's taking a toll on me. I'm, I'm beat down. How am I supposed to now sing and worship you? And Jesus wants to meet you there, church. See, we don't sing just because Jesus commands it in Scripture, although he does. All throughout Scripture, he says, sing, 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 sing. So I'm not saying we shouldn't sing because he's commanded it. What I am saying, though, is that we can sing out of rejoicing in our salvation. And when we sing and we gather as a church, we are singing to remember what Christ has done. And it helps as a way to reorient our hearts that have been beat down all week and that are coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, I, I just don't feel like it today, Jesus. And this serves as a reminder, hey, we gather here we don't gather here to just pat ourselves on the back. We don't gather to listen to the music. Maybe, you know, we don't gather to just get some coffee and move on and go to breakfast or lunch. When we gather here, we are rejoicing in our Savior. We are rejoicing in the salvation that we enjoy through Jesus. And that should be more than enough reason to sing. See, when Justin or I or the rest of the team encourages you to sing each week, church, it's not because it's a cool thing or it's a greater experience for people who may visit. It's not just this cool thing that we're telling you to do, but it's an invitation from God to say, hey, whatever happened during the week, whatever's been weighing heavy on my heart, I can let go of that. It's 20 minutes, 30 minutes where I don't have to think about other stuff and I can focus on Jesus because Jesus has saved my soul and I am going to sing in thankfulness to what he's done. That's what we're doing, church, when we, when we gather here and sing. We don't sing just because he commands it, but we sing out of thankfulness in our hearts. And see, church, what I want us to understand is that when we worship Jesus, our affection for Jesus grows. And when our affection for Jesus grows, that's going to ultimately impact our mission. So if you want to be missional, start worshiping. Because if we don't worship, we're not going to be missional. Or your mission might just be good deeds. And you might as well join a nonprofit. When we worship, we are fueling the mission of Jesus. You can think of it as the wood that you put into a fire. When you talk about the mission of God, you start with your affections. You start with your joy for Jesus. And that rejoicing that I have in my salvation should lead me to worship. And that worship to Jesus should lead me to mission. And the same way when I'm being missional and doing good deeds, that should lead me to worship Jesus. There's a direct correlation between the two. See, our affections, when our affections for Jesus are high, I promise you it will lead to a better witness of our community. I remember when Lila was first born, many of you probably remember this, but my phone started getting full of pictures. And now I'm to the point where 
Apple's like, hey, you got to pay $10. And I'm like, I don't know, bro. So I'm, think, I'm still thinking about it. But uh, I remember unconsciously showing my friends like, oh, you got to see this picture. Like, oh, look at her in the hospital. Oh, look at her here. And like, it was a baby. You know, there was nothing special about these pictures. But I was, my affection for her had grown so much that I was like, yo, you got to see this thing. And I remember parents doing this all the time. And I would be like, all right, cool, man. You know, it's just a baby. And I get it. But my, see, my affection for her had grown so much, hopefully not to the point of, hey, I'm worshiping Lila. But it had grown to the point where I was like, yo, you got to see this picture. Like when you have a good reel or a meme and you're like, I got to send this to somebody. I was that guy. And I say this to show that when our affections grows, our witness also grows. See, when my affections for Jesus are high, then I will be more prone to share Jesus with others. When I am enamored by my Savior and I am able to see the beauty and enjoy his presence in my life, then why wouldn't I want that for somebody else? So if you want your witness to grow, and that's what Jesus is saying here, hey, you can rejoice in your salvation. And by your rejoicing in your salvation, you will then be able to speak about the gospel with boldness and confidence and love for others. And church, that's why it's so important for us to worship Jesus together. It's not only a moment where we reorient our affections for Jesus, but it is ultimately impacting our mission. It is ultimately impacting the way in which we speak of Jesus. And when we sing together, we are providing a testimony for those who don't believe to walk in here and say, what is going on? It's 9 a.m. on a Sunday. It's early. It's not time for a concert, but these people are going in. And that should serve as a testimony. And hopefully it flows from a heart that's overjoyed with your Savior. I don't know if you've ever met uh, someone who's good at sales, but anyone who's good at sales will tell you, if you love the product, you'll be able to sell it much easier. And I know some of the best salespeople I've met love the product. And the reason that is, isn't because you have to have like this crazy love for the product or because the product's awesome. The reason is because it's going to inform how you talk about it. And if I'm not enamored by Jesus, how could I share it with somebody else? If I'm not enamored by what he's done in my life, if I can't testify of how he's moving in my life right this second, then how would I expect to share it with anyone else? The more you grow in your love for God, the more it will lead you to mission the more it will leave you to being a witness in your sphere of influence, to being a witness at work, to being a witness in your neighbors, to being a witness in your community. So if you want to be a witness to those around you, start asking God, God, grow my affections for you. Jesus wants to give us more of him every single day. And maybe you come to worship. I know I came distracted to worship and I can say, Jesus, give me more. Jesus, reorient my affections. Jesus, help me forget about 
X, Y, Z and help me to focus on you and what you've done because it is a powerful name. It is a beautiful name that I get to sing this morning and I can rejoice in that. Church, we can join God in his mission with confidence and joy knowing that our names are written in heaven, that we are citizens of heaven. And that's where our mission should flow from. We can join God with confidence and joy, knowing our names are written in heaven.